closing appeal for steadfastness and unity. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sintish to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord, in the Lord always, I say. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learnt or received or heard from me, or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Uh, stability is pretty hard to come by. Stability is important if you're on a paddleboard like me, winding down the windows trying to keep your core strength in motion, jealous that your kids are better than you. But stability is very important when you're on a paddleboard. It's very important on a paddleboard when the person next to you is doing a handstand. That is core strength. This stability is important when you're doing a downward dog. Okay, I can't do one of those yet. I, don't, I haven't tried. Perhaps that's why I can't do one. But um, stability is important if you're on a paddleboard doing a downward dog or if it's, you're in employment. I think it's reckoned now that you have about eight jobs in a lifetime. And so working for the same employer in the same place for, and even in the same career is increasingly rare because we live in a, in a global workforce and a global marketplace. Because stability is important and it's hard to come by. And, and when it goes, people really notice. I, I think that's one of the reasons behind so many, many people willing to queue on the South Bank for hours, if not nearly a day, to pay their respects for Queen Elizabeth II at her passing, her death. She's been there all my life, said people. I've, I, I've never met her. Some people did, but people would say, I've, I've never met her, but she's always been there, and I just feel it r the right thing to do. I think one of the reasons behind that was people long for stability. Now, it's true in the personal environment. It's true in travel as well. So if you are uh, jumping on a plane, you really hope that the engineer has done due diligence and there are stabilizers on the rear fins. You hope an accident will never happen whilst you're on the plane or indeed anybody else. But, but rear fins are there on an airplane for a stabilizing force as crosswinds come. Stabilizing uh, factors are also used in boat design. So there's ballast there in the hull so that if there is a strong wind, hopefully this does not happen. So personal, travel, life stability is really important. It's important in the church as well. It's important for all, us all to have internal stability, internal core strength for the uh, changing times and seasons as they come, not just in the calendar year, but more importantly, in our lives. 
You get knocked off course for a decade because you haven't got a stabilizing force. You haven't got core convictions in your emotional center. Paul is describing in chapter 4 and throughout the book indeed a stable life. Paul is granite-like in his living because he knows the rock of ages. That's why he can be a rock. That's why he can point to the example of King Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 as an example of humility. Be like him, have a mind like Christ. Chapter 2 verse 5, he points to Timothy and he points to Epaphroditus and says, be like them. In chapter 3, he's now saying, live like me. Chapter 3, 15 and 16. And now by the, as he begins to sum up, finally, he said that once already, but now he really means it. Finally, chapter 4 verse 1, he's saying and describing, this is what you need to do. I'm looking through the prison bars as I'm chained to this uh, ruddy, tall uh, size of a monster of a man who's keeping guard. I'm facing death row, but I'm able to rejoice in any and every circumstance because I know the Lord of the universe. I have a, a strong spiritual emotional center and I'm writing to you through all the turbulence that you're facing, church at Philippi, the most important thing you can do is this, 4-1. Stand firm in the Lord. This is what you need to do because turbulence is coming. Suffering is coming. The end of chapter 1 was introduced to that theme. So it says, stand fast or stand firm. And then Paul says, I'm going to teach you how to do it. I'm going to teach you not how to do a handstand on a paddleboard or a downward dog or a boat design or airplane design. I'm going to teach you how to live a stable life as Christians. Here's the principle and then here are four uh, disciplines or three disciplines rather. Here's a principle followed by three disciplines. Number one, here's here's the principle for the stable life. Paul uh, exhibits at the end of chapter three and into chapter four that the principle that the whole Bible always uses for dealing with the stuff of life when waves hit when suffering comes when the light turns down and it all appears dark in your world and in your experience when you face anxiety as is mentioned in this chapter as you face pressures and stresses I cannot pay the bills the energy prices seem to have no end in their uh, escalation of cost how do you deal with that other than a Netflix other than a bottle other than something to fill the cracks of your heart, normally uh, sponsored by Cadbury. This is where Paul points us. This is what the Bible does. When you're faced with pressure, stress, anxiety, difficulty, suffering, here's the principle that the Bible uses. You need big truths that you apply in little places. You need cosmic realities that you apply to what is seemingly mundane but really matters. That's how the Bible always operates. Cosmic truths for the mundane. Big truths apply to little places. But the world does the very opposite thing. You watch a TED talk. You listen to one. You buy one of these self-help books. And they do not begin with principles. They always begin with method. I was chatting to someone this <laughs> about this this week. They say, here are the seven steps to this. The less anxious life. Here's a long book on how to manage your time better. Here's how to work more efficiently. Here's how to manage your finances. There's always a 10-step method or a 7 or a 12. It's always straight to management of the issue rather than the principles behind it. You're too busy. Your diet needs changing. Your balance is out of kilter. 
They never start with the big picture. The Bible always does. And that's what Paul has done here. Verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. Look at what he says. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Hear his heart, hear his affection. This is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Eudia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Notice up in yellow on the screen you can see that word that. That is how you should stand firm in the Lord. Now this is where we were two weeks ago. At the end of chapter 3, Paul is addressing these three groups of people who are concerned about their Judaizers. Jesus is not enough, you need the law as well. The law is how you can receive righteousness. Your own performance can impress God, you don't need Jesus alone. Paul says no, it's Jesus alone or nothing. And then there's the issue as well of perfectionism. You can live a sinless life now. You don't need to strive for holiness. You don't need to strive to see Jesus face to face. And then there's a third group down in verse 17 and following who have disordered loves and affections and they're living for the world and they're enemies of the cross and that God is their bellies. And in chapter 3 verse 20, Paul takes this huge cosmic truth and he applies it, chapter 4 verse 1, to the situation that he faces. Chapter 3, verse 20, Paul's talking about the issue of belonging. He says, our citizenship, chapter 3, verse 20, is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Here's the cosmic truth. And then Paul takes that and he applies it to this mundane matter. That is how you stand firm. You will not stand firm just by doing one, two, three, four. You will not stand firm by just decluttering your life. You will only stand firm if at your emotional center, your core convictions is what he's been talking about in chapter 3, verse 20. You are not to live in this world. You're living for the better world. You're not uh, on your passport. It should not say England, above England. It should say Christian, living for a better place. Paul knows instinctively what our hearts truly long for. He knows that in our hearts, as we look out and we see all the changing scenes of life, we long for someone to be in charge who has competence and is a person of good character. Yes, I'm talking about Westminster someone who knows what to do, someone who can be trustworthy. We long for someone like that, and yet we struggle to find it. We know that this world is passing through. We know that in this world, nothing truly lasts. There's no love that lasts. There's no friendship that truly lasts. There's no figure that lasts. There's no joy that satisfies deeply in our hearts. There's no strength that lasts. It fails us. Nothing lasts. But in our hearts, there is a longing for something to last. We long in our hearts for something that truly satisfies, something that bears the weight that we put upon it rather than a relationship that will be crushed. If that's there, if we place everything on the one we love, we will crush them. Because deep down inside, we know we're built for a better place. We know that we're built for a place in a situation where things do last, where things do satisfy rather than a chasing after the wind. We long for a person that knows us, but also loves us. And we won't find that truly anywhere in this world. But we don't just want stability. 
Paul knows that there is a place and there is a person in whose orb of influence things don't just get the same, they get new, they get better. One day after another, all things will be made new. And Paul takes that longing and says, you won't find it anywhere in this world, but you will find it there. You will find it in the heavens. You will find it in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he says, if you need to stand firm, do not look anywhere in this world for a place of stability and strength that will bear the weight that you place upon it. This is where you need to look. Chapter 3, verse 20, to the cosmic, to the eternal, to what lasts, to the person of Jesus Christ. And having gone to the heights, to the important things, to the cosmic reality, to Jesus, to the heavenly realm, he then says, now I've got something to say to you. There's trouble at mill. Immediately he turns from saying, verse 1, this is how I want you to stand firm, to two friends, two female co-workers in the gospel, in the church of Philippi. And you see what he's doing? This is not unimportant to the Apostle Paul, and it's not unimportant to Jesus Christ. Here are two co-workers in the gospel, two reliable, godly, well-equipped women, and yet they're at each other's throats over something. And Paul says, these truths are not pie in the sky when you die. These truths should affect how you live and operate now. So don't just believe one thing and then operate in a different way. Don't just ignore when there's trouble in relationships. So Paul is saying these great truths, the cosmic truths, the eternal truths, the truths about the gospel and Jesus Christ, you need to see where this relationship that is dysfunctional fits into the whole of eternity. You think, God, that's a bit heavy. What's he doing? He's applying the truth of the gospel into this important context of two ladies that are not seeing eye to eye. Hey, Yudia, hey, Syntyche, hey, sisters, remember where you're from. Chapter 3, verse 20, we're talking about belonging. You both will be living next to each other in heaven. So why have you forgotten that truth and can't get on now? You need to apply that truth to today. How can you be so petty if you're going to be sat next to each other in heaven? How can you be so divisive? How can you look through each other and create caricatures of each other when you remember that you both belong to Jesus Christ? He's rescued both of you. So you need to get together. You need to sort it out. You need to address it because it's important. The only way that you cannot look each other in the eye with dignity, one of you is looking down on the other, one of you is looking up at the other person because they're looking down on you, is if you forget those eternal truths and don't apply them to your everyday life. Well, that's intense. It is, but it works. And that's the way the Bible always works. It takes these great truths and says they're not just for up there. They're to affect everyday life and living. They're to affect heart priorities and life principles. Cosmic truths to be practically used through all the changing scenes of life, says the old hymn. Now, how on earth do you do that? That's the principle. And then Paul says, well, here are three disciplines. Here are three disciplines, the discipline of prayer, the discipline of grace, the discipline of presence. Let's get into that. Number two, three principles, three disciplines for applying this great principle, should I say, to all of life. The discipline of prayer, verse six. What a verse this is. On how many fridges can you find it? Do not be anxious about anything but. Now, if you don't do what follows... 
you'll be an anxious person for all the days of your life. Do not be anxious about anything, but rather in the place of anxiety, in everything, Paul says, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now notice Paul does not just say, pray. Just pray. You're anxious? Just just turn up the prayer volume. Pray more frequently, more often. Pray better. Pray harder. Paul says, I know you're going to pray, but this is how you need to pray. When you go into that posture of prayer, when you're praying on the uh, 7-Eleven going up to Waterloo, when you're praying an arrow prayer as you open a door, whether it's a, a Zoom door to go into a meeting or a physical door to see somebody face to face, be thankful for every outcome that God could give you because you trust your Heavenly Father. Now that is difficult. This is the point. Don't just pray harder, more intensely, more earnestly, more frequently. You need to pray, says Paul, with a different posture if you want to reduce and banish anxiety from your spirit. This is how you pray. You need to pray for a stress-free life. You need to pray for a stress-free life by trusting the wise love of God who will give you what you need in every circumstance of your life. So you're praying before you even receive an answer. John Newton put it like this. He said, if you're a child of God, he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, if you've not heard of him. If you're a child of God, remember God's character every day. He says, everything God lets through into your life must be necessary. Everything he doesn't let through couldn't be necessary because of his wise love for you. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing is necessary that he withholds. So you pray, not more, not less, you pray with a different posture that is thankful for whatever God sends because you trust God as a child to a heavenly father who loves you and who does all things well. As a child, the summer holidays feel like an eternity. But we can only see part of the picture. But God sees it all and everything necessary for our godliness and growth and goodness he will allow and send into our lives. Nothing that comes into our lives will he withhold if it is not for our good. So every time you're suffering, every time something goes wrong in your life, you need to see it through the lens of the cross. That's why I read from Mark's gospel. Jesus is saying three times with increasing clarity and increasing detail, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. Jesus is hanging on the cross for the sins of the world and the disciples run away and they've been warned. The greatest gift the world has ever received and will ever receive, Jesus dying for the sins of the world and the disciples run away. It's the greatest act of wisdom from God who knows all things well in the history of the world. They were warned, but they still didn't get it. And I will rise three days later. But a Christian is someone who says, I will not run away in my heart. What do I mean? I'm not going to do that. I will not run away. I'm going to trust God in the midst of a difficulty. If there is a God, like a child, I will not understand everything that my parent does but I want to trust them. If there isn't a God, you've got absolutely no reason to complain. Who are you complaining to? Life is just what you get. 
it's a box of chocolates. But if you're a Christian, you're like a disciple who doesn't run away, but you're like the disciple who stays, like the women who stayed and look up at the cross and say, I don't know how this is working out, but I trust you. And I want to witness of your goodness like the women did to anyone that will listen. Are you remembering your childlikeness? They are experts that we need to learn from, trusting our Heavenly Father that does all things well. Are you willing to be like a little child? It's very interesting, isn't it, that Jesus points to children in his ministry when he says, if you want to be part of my kingdom, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to follow me, do you need to be like these experts? You need to trust me like a child trusts their parents. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You are not a Christian unless you treat me as your father and you remind yourself that you are a child. So are you? Are you treating God like a wise father? Is that how you relate to him? Are you loving him and honoring him in that sense? Are you re-seeing all of your circumstances from his perspective? Nothing that he sends me is for my ill. It's all for my good. That's a hard truth. But that's what it means to pray. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. I trust you that however this matter works out that I'm praying for is for my ultimate good. That's a hard truth that the Bible teaches again and again. But that's not the only one. Here's another one. The first discipline is prayer. The second discipline is grace. Look at verse 4 and into verse 5, the discipline of applying God's grace to your heart. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. That phrase, let your gentleness be evident to to all is one of the few places where you, you have a word, original language is Greek for the New Testament, that's really hard to put into one phrase. So different people have had a, a swing at it, and they've had a swing at it in these ways. It's a sense of radical evenness of, uh, of temper, of being fair-minded, of not being someone who digs their heels in and makes a, an obstinate stand for what is your just due. Not being someone who's so, so strict on insistence of their own rights that's the sense that Paul is saying here in verse 5 and into verse 6 let your gentleness be evident to all now now what's going on in Paul's experience Now, now remember let's take a step back from the letter because he says the Lord is near and he's got this sense this perspective he's about to have his earthly life ended in this prison cell at some point he's going to have his probably his head removed from his shoulders or he's going to be crucified like his savior Jesus and he says and he knows the Lord is near and so be reasonable Don't uh, insist on your own rights because there's a day coming where if you experience injustice now, if your name is dragged through the mud, if your character is vilified, do not feel the need to stand up for yourself to such a degree that you do others harm because the Lord is near and he will sort it all out. He will pay all the debts and he is the one that does all things well. Your reputation is very, very precious in his hands. But look at what Paul was facing in the church. It's his own situations, but there are arguments, full of arguments. There's the threat of the Jews, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, who say Jesus is not the only way. You need a bit of religiosity tapped in. There's enemies of the cross. That's the end of chapter 3. There's Epaphroditus' illness that we saw in chapter 2 that makes him so anxious that it, uh, he's, he's just so concerned about it. 
It drives them to despair. Chapter 2, verse 28. I'm very anxious about this. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord. I say again, rejoice. That's a quandary for us to think through. And then you have these two fine Christian women in chapter 4 who've conducted missionary work and now they're at each other's throats. And Paul says, with all of that backdrop, here's the most important thing you can do. You need to rejoice in the Lord. But you're in prison, I know, but I'm still rejoicing in the Lord. But your life is going to end, I know, but I'm rejoicing in the Lord. But these two fine Christian women are at each other's throat, I know, but I'm rejoicing in the Lord. I'm rejoicing in the Lord because of what God has power to do amongst his people. The Christ who died on the cross, the Christ who's uh, sovereignly in control over all things, and the Christ who is amongst his people, working through this strange bunch at Philippi and in Epsomanuel as well. So whatever's going on, no matter how hard it is, there's never a time that we cannot rejoice in the Lord and in his people. Rejoice. I say again, rejoice. There's a tremendous radical even uh, temperedness if you use and apply the grace of God to your heart. It's, it's like a ballast in a boat. It's like a fin on the back of a plane. It's this uh, spiritual core strength that you know who you are because of the grace of God in your heart. Now, how do you use the grace of God in your heart? Well, look at verse 3. Paul says, rejoice. Right above it, he says in verse 3, your names are written in the book of life. Now, that's going to include these two ladies as well who can't get along. They're not agreeing, but their names are written in the book of life. He says, rejoice. Use that truth when you're feeling anxious. Use that truth when you're feeling that God has abandoned you because he never will. But rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. It's fascinating that Jesus does this in Luke chapter 10, verse 20 as well. He's sending out the disciples to drive out demons. Talk about that another time. But paraphrasing, he says this, Go out, but rejoice not that you have spiritual strength so that you can cast demons out. Rather rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. That's what you should be rejoicing about. Don't rejoice that you uh, have uh, super spiritual powers. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now this is an Old Testament truth that the, the high priest would go into the very presence of God with a special uh, set of clothes on and an ephod that he would wear and, and, a, and a breastplate with names written on jewels representing God's people. And he would go into God's presence with the names of God's people close to his heart. And then Jesus comes along and reveals that he is he's the great high priest of God with, his, uh, with our names written on his hands from the book of Isaiah. And so just as the high priest went into God's presence, now we have God himself before the Father pleading for us with our names on his hands and close to his heart. Your names are written in heaven, says Paul. Judea, Syntyche, when Jesus Christ uh, died for you and is raised to life for you, your father now sees you two warring women and you are precious to him. So you need to apply that great truth to each other and don't look through each other. Don't send uh, poisonous WhatsApp messages to each other or whatever it was in the first century. You need to love each other because your names are written in the book of life. You can deal with any circumstance in life if you remember this truth. Christian friends, 
Your names are written in the book of life. Have you forgotten your standing? Have you forgotten who Jesus Christ makes you today? Have you forgotten what he's done for you? Rejoice not in what you've done. Rejoice in his grace. Your names are written upon his hands and upon his heart. If you're warring with other Christians or if you've forgotten who you are and so you're tempted to go to the world for your identity, you need to remember the discipline of applying God's grace to your heart. Because Jesus is your great high priest. He sees you as an absolute beauty because of the work on the cross that he did alone. And when that happens, verse 7 is true. Verse 7, if you do these things, if you apply God's grace to your heart, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds. If you go down to verse 9, the God of peace will keep you. That's not an accident. It's one thing to seek the peace of God, but you mustn't stop there. You have to seek the God of peace, which is the third discipline as well. Prayer, grace, presence, the discipline of the presence of God. When you start to remember that God is a heavenly father who will only send you good things, even if it's hard to receive at first, when you remember God's grace shown primarily in Jesus on the cross, beyond that is ultimate peace. Verse 7 again says, The peace of God guards your heart. Paul deliberately chooses a verb that's used in military warfare at this point. And he says, just as there's a kind of um, the praetorium guard that goes around Caesar, well, that came from God, but God's peace guards your heart. It's like a sentry that's marching around your heart. No matter what you're experiencing, God is reminding you of his grace and the safety in his care. God is guarding them. Remember Elisha? I'm all alone. You've deserted me. And then God reveals to him the glory of the heavens. And so you can pray with thanksgiving. Sometime in the Christian life as we close, it feels like you're just hanging on. We've been taught in the book of Philippians that we need to work out our salvation. We need to stand firm. Sometimes we're just hanging on if we're honest. But here are the disciplines of prayer, of grace, and of his presence. And sometimes when you experience his presence, his peace just overwhelms you, perhaps in the quiet place. Transcends your thinking, transcends everything. And how is that possible? Because Jesus Christ is the Lord of the feast. It's interesting, the very first miracle that Jesus performs in John chapter 2 is he's at a wedding. All this joy surrounded him. He's made water into really fine wine. It's a great party picture. God is not a spoiled sport. But what does that show you? Jesus is revealing his glory at Cana in Galilee. He's come to bring joy. And yet in the midst of all this joy, this kind of feastal gathering, he's there supping a cup. Because our joy will only be possible because of the sorrow that's before him. And when you see that joy supped for the coming sorrow, you remind yourself, I trust, as you apply God's grace to your heart. Jesus Christ did that so we could sit in the middle of our sorrow and sip, just in a small way, the coming joy. So it's taking these great cosmic truths and applying them to everyday life. Applying them to the mundane things. And when you do that, you have a sense of real stability in the midst of turbulence. And maybe you'll be a bit more like Paul, the rock, because he knew the rock of ages, Jesus.